0: Last time on HI101 we talked about some of the early factors that shaped jazz music up until the beginning of the 1920s when two types emerged the sleazy bar band jazz of the speakeasy and the sparkling respectable jazz that would become widely known as big band in this episode we're going to pick up in the 1920s and follow the format through its most popular decades as it becomes closer to what we would tend to think of as classic jazz music let's begin Okay, I'm here on HI 101 with Yumiko Hutchinreuther. Hello. Hi. And we've been talking about jazz. Yes. It's been a lot of fun. It I'm really enjoying this topic.
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah. It is an exciting topic.
0: So last time we talked about, or, or last time we ended off talking about the Charleston, which was this sort of breakout sensation, mm-hmm. kind of a fusion of different uh, music styles at the time by a musician named James P. Johnson, who, like, did you know that name? I didn't know his name.
1: No, I don't think so. I
0: couldn't have named the guy who wrote the Charleston Mm-mm. in a million years. Just too bad. Which is cause...
1: kind of sad if you think about it because it's so well-loved and it's so popular. I think he, he was kind of a one-hit to... wonder. But he deserves to have his name known.
0: I agree. I absolutely agree. And it's a great song. It came at a really good time because there's a lot of weird stuff going on in the U.S. at that point in time. <laughs> the Jazz Age generally refers to it pretty much lines up with prohibition in the United States, mm-hmm. and prohibition ran from 1920 to 1933. Pro- prohibition was, it didn't go so good. It wasn't a great experiment. <laughs> prohibition was based on a lot of different things. There, there was a, um, there was a movement in the United States called the temperance movement, and we kind of alluded to this a little bit last time when we talked, uh, when we talked about W. C. Handy and his father having been a, uh, a pastor. And this idea around the turn of the century of living a clean life, you know, sort of physically translating to spiritual cleanliness. Mm -hmm. And because of, I I mean, before Prohibition, it's really kind of hard to describe just how much alcohol Americans drank. The stats are staggering. I should have written some down to bring to the table, but they were drinking a lot of booze. Mm a lot and a lot of people pointed to it as a source of social evils Mm -hmm. um sometimes rightfully sometimes probably blaming things on it that that shouldn't have been but um there there was a there were a lot of people who believed that that if alcohol was illegal it would clear up a lot of things along the lines of um, like especially crime especially Mm -hmm. violent crime Mm -hmm. Uh, it was seen as a solution to that a lot of the leaders of the temperance movement were women and in 1920, the 19th Amendment went through, giving women the right to vote mm-hmm. in the United States. And just like that, a voter base comes up that is all about not letting anyone drink. Right. So they gained a lot of political power really quickly, and they kind of went, well, what the heck, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Not so well. Not so well. Um, really, what ended up happening was that there was a major upturn in uh, home brewing. Mm-hmm. Especially in the South, you get the whole idea of of sort of you know making moonshine in the in the barn. Right. It also hurt a lot of American businesses. Uh, rum was huge in the mm-hmm. United States. Rum was a big business, and temperance basically killed the rum industry in the United States, as well as uh, encouraging a lot of people to smuggle alcohol. <laughs> Often from Canada. So. so really,
1: instead of like diminishing crime, it was like, here's a new opportunity for a new form of crime.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And they saw a giant uptick in, in organized crime because there was a lot of money to be made because people really like drinking. Oh, yeah. They, they, will do, <laughs> they will do a lot of things to get alcohol. They sure will. And this is where you start getting a lot of the kind of the, the older you know Chicago gangsters that you that you think of. They were based in Chicago because it was close to Canada. hmm <laughs> Yeah, they were they were running moonshine out of uh, out of Canada and making a lot of money selling it stateside. So there's this whole culture that springs up that's usually called speakeasy culture, mm-hmm. and it's it's again it would be something it would be interesting to look into in a little bit more detail at some point. But like really, what you had was that like everybody knew where you could get some booze, and it was usually at these seedy little illegal clubs mm-hmm. that were you know more dangerous because they were being operated without licenses so you know things like occupancy levels were not being attended to and you know you couldn't exactly call the cops for security if a fight broke out and like there's there's a lot of things that make that a lot more dangerous as a as a situation than just letting people kind of go to a bar yeah i don't know in in general (laughs) historically speaking prohibition has not been a good solution to most types of substance abuse mm-hmm. now we're, we're also talking about the 1920s i don't think that you know supportive therapy and treatment is, is exactly up their alley Not at this point
1: quite as advanced as it is today
0: we haven't quite gotten there <laughs> as a culture but no. one thing's for sure sending people to jail over it wasn't the way to go on the flip side the 1920s were really strong economically you get the, you know, the, they, they call them the Roaring Twenties. It's because mm-hmm. everyone was making so much money. So much money. The United States was doing really well. A lot of that's actually because of fallout from uh, the First World War, because it had such a devastating effect on Europe, and because North America was relatively untouched by uh, the First World War. Well, relatively. They, they weren't touched by it at all, other than the, the armies that they sent across for a fairly short amount of the, of the war. Mm-hmm. Canada was a little different, but we're, we're talking about mainly the United States here. The United here. States. They were making a lot of money where Europe had been formally. They were also making a lot of money uh, helping Europe rebuild. They were also making a lot of money off of uh, wartime loans that these countries had taken from the United States to pay for their war efforts. Mm-hmm. Money was just flowing in. You also get stuff like the the things that were happening on the stock market at that point in time that a lot of us will talk about in school at some point or another. Yeah. Basically, what was happening was that people were buying stocks with imaginary money that they hadn't made yet on the assumption that they were going to make that money. So, you know, when when things went bad in 1929, it was really just everyone finding out how much money they actually had and not being happy about it. Yeah. But everyone thought they had a lot of money at this point. (laughs) The other thing is that post-war, there was a big swing uh, in terms of culture when we're looking at things like uh, social mores. So we were talking last time with the Charleston about uh, uh, for women hemlines coming up. Even as far as the knee, scandalous. Ah,
1: scandalous.
0: Um, so you could actually kick up your heels a little bit when you dance. <laughs> but you know, things like uh, women smoking cigarettes, which was just shocking, and people were being a little bit more open about sexuality than they would have been before this, because you know, we're talking about you know Queen Victoria having been yeah. dead for like twenty years. Yeah. Like we're it's it's interesting looking at the United States and Europe on the same timeline sometimes because. Yeah. They don't seem to quite line up all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting, like when you put them side by side and kind of look at them contextually against each other,
0: especially socially. Yeah, especially socially, because you know when you're when you're looking at approximately Civil War era United States, where you're talking about you know cowboys in Texas and 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 uh, uh, California, mm-hmm. you know the the whole Forty Nine Gold Rush stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. That's happening only thirty years after Napoleon.
1: Yeah, that's insane when you put it that way. Cause they feel so much further removed from each other than that.
0: Yeah, Na- Napoleon's final defeat was eighteen fifteen. Yeah. The Gold Rush was eighteen forty nine.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. It's not a lot of time. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: twenty five years. Yeah, they they seem to kind of function on a different on a different scale for some reason, and I think a lot of that is is just the the newness of the United States. They, they it's 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 got a very unique place in. History is kind of having had the chance to start completely from scratch and build something completely unique, and you know it may have whiffed it once or twice along the way, but it, it's still very, you know, it 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 didn't have the burden of of centuries of tradition, tradition and 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 social norms sitting mm-hmm. on its shoulders holding it back from certain things. Yeah, and as a result, you see a lot of things that are done that are considered very non-traditional from a European point of view, but are in fact kind of building the the American um, identity. Mm-hmm. And, and jazz is a big part of that because, you know, as we talked about last time, the, the, the music in, in Europe is still at this point in time very much what you would think of in terms of like band music um, or, or petty operas or, you know, even there, there are some composers, or composers around that are still doing what we would consider classical music mm-hmm. at this point in time, which doesn't sound like it should be on the same plane as the Charleston.
1: yeah for sure.
0: So anyways, you've got this whole jazz age thing going on where, you know, the young people seem to be completely out of control of what they're well, with their new length hemlines <laughs> and their you know, smoking so cigarettes. Rebellious. And their jazz. And their j- the jazz was seen as part of that, right? Yeah. Like because all of this time these jazz musicians haven't been playing in reputable places. Mm-hmm. You know, there've been some dance halls that have kind of taken some of the more popular ones especially when, you know, they had the opportunity to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But most of these, well, all of the artists that we've talked about so far have been black, and most of them can't work in the South, where where most of them are coming from to begin with. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them, when they're at least when they're when they're coming up, are working in still working in saloons and brothels and you know, playing piano at the at the local general store and and really like very basic grassroots kind of uh kind of learning and and it's it's interesting music because it's not dictated by those centuries Mm -hmm. of tradition when you look at the the... it's not
1: like you go to a conservatory to learn how to play ragtime
0: (laughs) exactly exactly because you you look at the music that comes out of europe and it's all like you can you can follow the line back and it goes a long way oh yeah you know back to uh even you you know a, a lot of the traditions you can, you can point to, you know, Gregorian chants and things like that as being a source of, mm-hmm. um, you know, choral music, of, of, of uh, um, some of the things that they tried to replicate with chamber music and, and, you know, the development of instruments over the years. It's got a close tie to the, the church in terms of, of um, the types of music that were commissioned and then became popular and then were emulated and then became sort of formulaic or, or, or established. Well, I mean, that's exactly what's happening in the U.S., except instead of, instead of it being the Vatican com- uh, commissioning Bach to write entire masses, it, it's people taking the, the um, spirituals that they're hearing every week in, in church that are being sung with these, you know, this call-and-answer heritage, and they're taking that and they're translating it to these instruments that they're teaching themselves mm-hmm. or learning from a friend or from a family member and developing the traditions that way. So when you're a speakeasy and your whole deal is to keep people entertained and having a good time and buying alcohol from you illegally. <laughs> you don't really care where your your, your entertainment is coming Not
2: from. Not really. No.
0: And so a lot of the times they're hiring these black musicians because people love them. Mm. They love the music that they're playing. They love jazz. They cannot get enough of it. They're really enjoying what's coming out at this point in time. And because of that, you know, you get this you get this really close association with Jazz being hand in hand with immorality, jazz being hand in hand with illegal activity, promiscuity. There are, you know, some issues already of sort of the perception of African Americans at this point in time um, and their morality or lack thereof, unfortunately, which mm-hmm. just translates to the music that's associated with them. Mm-hmm. And it's just this whole kind of snowball effect of jazz being seen as like this really, kind of skeezy art form.
1: Yeah,
0: and the musicians kind of love it. <laughs> because it gives them a cred because they're not looking to be respectable they're not looking to be held up as as you know upstanding citizens they're not they're not trying to play for presidents they're not trying to tour europe they're not looking to get to carnegie hall, carnegie hall here mm-hmm. they are looking to play for people who want to hear them play who feel the music as much as they do yeah it's it's i mean obviously these guys have to live yeah. they got to earn some money but if they can do it while doing what makes them feel good and what makes other people feel good, that's as good as they can possibly hope for. Mm-hmm. And, and this whole speakeasy culture really gives them an opportunity to do that. We talked a little bit last time about the Great Migration between 1910 and 1930, uh, nearly 2 million African Americans moving out of the South and into mainly Chicago and, uh, and New York. Obviously, this, this brought new music forms with it specifically uh, hot jazz in Chicago, which uh, Louis Armstrong was a forerunner of. He got mm. to Chicago in 1922. So what you think of as, as sort of Louis Armstrong's like traditional style, the, with the the really tight drum work and occasionally guitar, but usually piano uh, horns, is, is, is really emblematic of hot jazz. He, he essentially helped to found that... Uh, that style of jazz Mm -hmm. and it was it was enormously popular people just loved it and what you start getting at this point in time i mean it it was there with honky tonk a little bit it was there a little bit with ragtime but more and more especially after the charleston you get this association of uh dancing with jazz Mm -hmm. so the whole kind of swing craze comes out of jazz the whole the, the charleston was its own thing but um uh, Lindy hop culture comes out of uh, comes out of all of this stuff mm-hmm. and we'll we'll kind of circle back to a couple of those but I, d- I don't want to linger as, as much as this show is about the uh, is, is about jazz I don't want to linger on the jazz age too much because you know to be honest with you there's a lot of stuff that we're not entirely sure on here because it wasn't well documented because these guys are just playing underground clubs mm-hmm. and so yeah you get some of the cream of the crop floating to the surface but you know a lot of the development of jazz at this point in time, we kind of have to interpolate based on what you know, what came before and what came after. Yeah. We're going to talk about the only two white musicians that we're going to talk about in this topic. And the names were were uh, George Gershwin, who you've probably heard of. Yes. And a guy whose name is Paul Whiteman.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's very on the nose, don't you a think? A little bit.
0: It's, like, I didn't make that up, I promise. <laughs> But his name was Whiteman. All right, Um, then. Paul Whiteman looked at these crazy kids and their jazz music and all of the dancing that they did Mm -hmm. and went, okay, this doesn't have to happen in an illegal context. We could bring it out of the CD speakeasies and make some money off of this. How much fun does that sound? And Paul Whiteman took a bunch of musicians. He made Paul Whiteman's orchestra. Hmm. And he went, I want to make jazz jazz people love jazz i want to make jazz and i want to bring people to my club with some jazz and he commissioned george gershwin to write a tune called rhapsody in blue Mm uh let's put that on right now it's uh it was recorded in 1924 and here we go Blue.
1: It's a very different style. Does it than... sound like jazz to you? No.
0: It really doesn't sound like jazz to me either. It
1: sounds more formulaic and intentional in certain ways. I don't know if intentional is the right word I'm looking for. I think but... it's
0: absolutely the right word. This was clearly written down on staff paper. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: The word that springs to mind for me is safe.
1: Yes, yeah. It's not pushing any envelopes, that's for sure.
0: It is. Sounds like it sounds like things it, it sounds like the kind of thing that like a grandma would think was fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I know is a really specific thing to say, but like it it's
1: it like sounds, oh this is nice. This is
0: nice. It it sounds just it sounds just risky enough mm-hmm. that you can see how somebody would be like, Yeah, this is like the jazz music that the kids are listening to.
1: But it isn't that, so it's, it's okay.
0: Not. It's not nearly that, but it's it's still like in this context, in this framework that's really easily understood by people who aren't deep into jazz culture at this point,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? It's it's very it's very much. I mean, that's an orchestra, like you can tell. Oh yeah, it's it's absolutely an orchestra that's playing that. An orchestra is not,
1: a, and it sounds like they're playing in a concert hall or something, which is
0: yeah. Well, I I mean the the version that we listened to isn't exactly the the original version. That's a much more recent recording, but yeah, it it. It still sounds like the kind of thing that's only played in concert halls, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe not in the speakeasy. <laughs> not I'd have in the speakeasy. And here's the other main thing for me: I'd have trouble dancing to that. I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, unless you're doing something really like abstract and like interpretive.
0: Yeah, I mean, Rhapsody in Blue was in Fantasia, which was it? Yeah, which oh, is I didn't kind remember of that. which is kind of the uh, unless it was Fantasia 2000.
1: That might be because I. I... Think... I don't recall it being in the first one, but then again, it's been...
0: I I believe it was in Fantasia 2000. I misspoke. But it sounds like the kind of music that would be in Fantasia. Because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this is fun classical music. <laughs> like, it doesn't even feel like jazz at all. No. I saw a really interesting breakdown on Rhapsody in Blue that that basically said that this was the most egregious form of... of kind of cultural appropriation, even though it wasn't really intended to be, but uh, it used the word domestication
2: mm.
0: to describe it. That's it made, a good word. It made, it, it, it took jazz, which is this sort of uncontrollable, indefinable thing that we've been talking about that's, that's, you know, we, we can't really completely express our feelings about, that we can't entirely write down on paper properly, that we, we don't know how to express, but we know it when we hear it. Mm-hmm. Took that and tried to parcel it up and it tried to, for lack of a better word, whitewash it. It was all about commercializing it, right? Like it's, it's about it's about how do I make money off of this thing? Mm-hmm. Because the kids want to be dangerous, but society in general doesn't want to be that dangerous. So let's pick a middle ground. Let's package it up and remove it from the things that make it completely objectionable by society as a whole, namely association with illegality uh, and the speakeasies. And unfortunately, the, the race associations. Um, Just
1: trying to clean up jazz's image a little bit.
0: Yeah. And uh, but at the same time, t- at the same time, try and hold on to what it is about jazz that makes jazz interesting. Mm-hmm. A lot of people really love this piece. I personally, I'm not a big fan, but it's a taste thing. I, I, I've never I've never really loved it that much but especially like in in doing the research for this uh, this topic and mm-hmm. hearing it in the context of some of this other mu- music that we're listening to it sounds so fake yeah and it's well composed and if you it listen to it it sounds very
1: manufactured in comparison
0: yeah if you like it's it's well composed like it follows all the rules that it's supposed to but that's mm-hmm. kind of the problem
1: I don't dislike it I just wouldn't really put it in the same category as the other things that we were listening to
0: yeah it's it's important for Two reasons. One is that this process is, has has started now, where the commercialization of jazz is well underway. Like it's been noticed, it is now a commodity. It is now going to be bought and sold on a level that's bigger than just an individual performer's ability to entertain people.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the other thing is that, as as much hate as I'm throwing the Paul Whiteman Orchestra's way, it is the precursor of one of the most popular forms of pop music in American history, uh, that being big band
1: mm-hmm. and I swing. big band.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, really what happens, the, the, the short version of the narrative of big band is, you know, okay, we need to clean up jazz's image a little bit. Fine. We, need to, we want to commercialize jazz a little bit. Okay. A bunch of black musicians took this this concept of the jazz orchestra and the dance hall jazz and started making good music with it again So Whiteman took this idea of, of, of commercializing jazz put it in everybody's heads and people started making much better music with it in my opinion at least <laughs> much more authentic f- sounding music
1: he sort of planted the seed for that to
0: absolutely and and I'm not I'm not saying that big band never would have happened without uh, without Whiteman but I feel like somebody was going to come along and try to do what Whiteman did sooner or later Mm -hmm. and uh and you know if if nothing else that earns him a little bit of a of a mention here because uh, yeah it's it's such a varied art form that really all you can talk about is the is the firsts and the turning points and things like that the other thing that comes up is large-scale radio broadcasts begin in 1932 sort of coast to coast and really only two kinds of music are played sort of band music like what you would hear in a high school band kind of thing Mm -hmm. which is kind of weird to think about (laughs) and uh and swing like big band yeah jazz which is kind of interesting there are certain stations that are playing things like country and and stuff like that in certain markets but it doesn't play coast to coast the way the big band does Mm -hmm. people love big band stuff and for good reason oh yeah let's throw on a quick example of some big band yeah nodding yeah okay (laughs)
2: in <laughs> you
0: Okay, so that was In the Mood by Glenn Miller, 1939. Uh, Kind of a classic. I think that's the one that, or it's one of the ones that people think of most readily. It's such
1: a great feel-good song.
0: I think a lot of people don't know what it's called.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: But if you hear, like, even the- It's very recognizable, though. Yeah, the opening opening notes are Mm -hmm. enough to set most people off. They know it immediately. I I picked this one for a fairly specific reason, namely that it's uh, almost entirely instrumental jazz has singers it has a lot of very famous singers but in general it's been a very instrumental music form for the most part uh it's it's been a lot about taking that call and answer form and moving it over to instruments and and trying to kind of stretch the limits of what that form can do Mm -hmm. now obviously that's that's not always true there's tons of singers especially the big band uh, tradition i mean this is this is the the genre of, of jazz, and it's it's weird to call big band jazz because again it feels like its own thing, but this is the genre where where you see Duke Ellington, mm-hmm. uh, Count Basie, Cab Calloway, yeah. uh, Nat the King classics. Cole, yeah. Dizzy Gillespie, uh, later on Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, Billie Holiday, mm-hmm. Ella, F- Ella Fitzgerald, yeah. like and and these people are like all incredible musicians, and I don't have time to touch on every single one but mm-hmm. really what this what this form of music is doing is taking jazz sprucing it up immensely so instead of being in cd little uh little clubs they're they're opening these dance halls where
1: it's a lot more accessible
0: yeah it is and it's a lot it's a lot it's a lot more high class like oh, yeah. all of the musicians are going to be you know dressed up Tux. in the same suits yeah and tuxes and and uh um, usually there'll be a, you know, a star singer, uh, often, often women are breaking into the genre mm-hmm. at this point, which was fairly dominated by men up yeah. until now.
2: Yeah.
0: And you know, the, the, the whole, the whole image of, of, you know, somebody like, uh, Billie Holiday coming out in like this long sequin dress mm-hmm. and singing in front of this, this big band playing that's, that's, that's from this, this is happening, you know, kind of mid thirties that it's really starting up. And I mean, the flip side of the flip side of music at this point in time is that you're, you're looking at the, the genre, which was, which is actually called old timey music, Mm -hmm. which is, is very much, you know, roots, bluegrass country style music. That's, Mm -hmm. that's kind of throwing back to old spirituals and things like that, that are really popular. Um, I'm thinking like a good, a good example would be big rock candy mountain, like the sort of dust bowl hobo songs, basically for lack of a better term. There's, there's that going on in American folk music too. Mm -hmm. Um, Jazz has just managed to kind of rebrand it re- itself, repackage itself as this really like uh, respectable, fun thing, very, very clean, very, very bright, and in the mood. Nineteen thirty nine was it, it's just like such a strong example of ev- everything that was that was strong about the musicianship in big band. So uh, again, if you listen, the, the the beat is swung. You get that right, and you have a very definite. that's running throughout you have different sections where different instruments are kind of not quite improvising there's a little bit of improvisation but it's a little bit more set in stone so people know what to expect and this for sure
1: is something you could dance to as opposed to Rhapsody in Blue
0: it is entirely geared towards dancing they want people to come out to the dance clubs and dance to this stuff and if you ever see video of people dancing to this stuff they're dressed up oh yeah they're like entirely dressed up this is not like this is not a down and dirty speakeasy anymore. Mm-hmm. This is like a fancy night out. This is this is champagne and yeah. uh, you know round booths and uh, you know like the whole like a something out of a, a Humphrey Bogart movie. Yeah,
1: exactly. You know what I mean? Like
0: it's got a very a classy feel to it. Mm-hmm. It's still jazz. If you listen, there's still uh, the syncopated beats. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like there's the there's the too strong the the da and then there's the the rolling kind of rhythm in behind it. That's pure jazz. It's it's mm-hmm. it's completely off of the beat. It's not. It's kind of just doing its own thing. The drums are swung really hard. There's a lot of uh, those really strong seventh notes that are putting sort of a strain on what the music's doing. This is something that could be written down on 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 staff paper for sure. Mm-hmm. It looks a little messy when you look at it, though. <laughs> it it, lo- it it does. I'm sure
1: if you looked at the score, it would be a little bit.
0: Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Exactly. Because they're they're still kind of struggling to notate this stuff that is trying to evoke a feel. Mm-hmm. But there's a again there's there's like this really strong um, association with dancing, but it becomes like a more formalized form of dancing. If you look at swing dancing, which is still very well, you know, alive today,
2: mm-hmm.
0: a, a lot of it's fairly formalized. Like if you go, you you can you can go and you can dance swing with somebody that you've never met before and mm-hmm. both know the steps fairly yeah. well. It's, it's, and And that's the fun
1: part of it too.
0: It absolutely is. And it's a, it's a fun dance form, but it's, it's not. When, when jazz started out being associated with, with dancing, you know, yeah, you have stuff like the Charleston, but the Charleston is a dance that you improvise within. And a lot of the dancing is going to be based on stuff that people have just kind of spontaneously come up with themselves. and, we mentioned the lindy hop earlier this is this is the point in time where the lindy hop actually comes out is in the late 30s early 40s mm-hmm. as a response to what's going on in swing because there's these people that are looking at what what has happened to big band and they're going ah this isn't really our music anymore
2: mm-hmm.
0: and they're still playing music that's that you would call jazz it's not nearly as popular as what's going on in the big band world but you know, the jazz scene in New York, for example, especially in Harlem, is is doing things that wouldn't sound that great with big band. It's, it's more piano based for the most part. And there's, you know, what you call street dancing, which is basically just people dancing to music that makes them want to dance. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where the Lindy Hop came from, because people will go down to Harlem and they would watch people that were dancing to this music and try and like learn new moves.
1: Yeah, learn the steps.
0: Yeah, the 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 Lindy Hop tradition is sort of like the down and dirty flip side of swing, right? Swing is kind of bright and fancy and and a little bit regimented, whereas Lindy Hop was was this this um, a little bit more in touch with the music style. And I I don't want to cast too many judgments on 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 the different styles because yeah. it's it's extremely subjective Mm -hmm. but in terms of what the people themselves that were doing these dances and enjoying these types of music were, were thinking at this point in time that's how they were framing it themselves in their mind from from what they've told us um that they saw they saw what was going on in Lindy Hop culture as as being a reaction to big band that they didn't like swing dancing that it was it was seen as as too formal too rich too white and 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 this was a way to continue Um, expressing themselves when uh, a chunk of their culture had been appropriated by the wider society.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So jazz continues to kind of react. That's, that's always been, you know, the other, the other side of this is jazz reacting against whatever's going on. Somebody tries to commercialize it and jazz reacts against it. So when you start bringing in guys like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, any of these singers, right? Like they were, they were originally known as crooners because that, that that form of singing involves singing fairly quietly, hence the, the word crooning. It's from the yeah. back of the throat rather than this like big projection. Like projecting, yeah. Right? And and that needs a microphone. That needs amplified sound. <laughs> and you don't have crooners without a microphone. Mm-hmm. So what you would have was it, it started off as being the band leader who would sing. And then it moved on to bringing in singers specifically for singing over big band or, or, or swing or, or they would even call them jazz singers sometimes. And that was kind of the that was kind of the place where big band split away from jazz again. Because mm-hmm. the the band stopped being the thing that was doing the interesting musical stuff. The mm-hmm. singer was the person that was doing the interesting musical stuff. The band was just there for them to sing over top of. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Now at this point, would you say that saxophone has yet to sort of make a statement within jazz music
0: no st- saxophone uh entered as part of the the band stage so so big band was really where you would see uh, a, a big entry into it jazz has never been a form that was incredibly exclusive in terms of uh instruments okay. yeah uh, i think Thelo- uh, Thelonious monk once said that the only rule in jazz was no accordions um <laughs> but <laughs> I, I mean his, his point is it's hard to make a jazzy sounding accordion most other things you can find the jazz inside them and it's 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 kind of all of a sudden you're talking about almost like a (laughs) like a a a spiritual thing or like a an intangible thing you know the the, the jazz is in there somewhere you just have to bring it out um but the saxophone would definitely be a big part of the uh the the band as a whole Mm -hmm. it's just that the saxophone you know being technically a woodwind and you know a little bit more expensive as an instrument Mm -hmm. wasn't nearly as popular. Uh, early on, when people were not well off, when they started learning, teaching themselves to play, mm-hmm. and basically using the instruments that were available to them. I mean, saxophone has a, a classier pedigree than something like, say, the trumpet, because the trumpet is is essentially a, a military mm-hmm. um, instrument.
1: That's true.
0: And even even Louis Armstrong started off on the cornet, like the without you know like a little a little military trumpet, not not the the actual trumpet itself. So yeah I, I I don't know it's it's interesting there's there's a certain there's a certain level of class that goes with certain instruments, yeah and up until this point, saxophone was a little too high class for jazz and it's interesting because the clarinet was still used, but clarinet was easier to get your hands on and maintain. Mm-hmm. It's also a little bit easier to play than than saxophone.
1: saxophone is really hard to play
0: absolutely yeah <clears throat> absolutely. and that's why you're not going to see any oboe. No, oh, for a long, like long time, probably one of the hardest, if not the
1: hardest, wind <laughs> instrument there is.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, they're they're going for things. They're not. It kind of feels like up until this point with jazz, the skill is less important than the emotion, mm-hmm. the the what they manage to evoke with their sound. Mm-hmm. And if you can make somebody feel um, with three notes, what you know, it could take eleven notes to make them feel. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's worth using those three for emphasis. You know what I mean. But you're not going for a difficult instrument to play just for the sake of being difficult.
1: Yeah, of course not.
0: But as the crooners kind of come in, the the, the skill of the band kind of falls back. The crooner becomes the the star, which is where I mean Sinatra was huge, immensely. It, it's 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 difficult to kind of uh, encapsulate just how uh, famous Frank Sinatra was, and and he was one of. Many many crooners that were famous throughout the the forties, right, mm-hmm. uh, all the way into the sixties. I mean, the 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 big band pop, the the crooner pop music that came out of that basically is what bridges the gap between big band and uh, you know eventually rock and roll. Mm-hmm. But that's not the musical direction we're going in at all. One of the uh, one of the big band leaders that we mentioned is. Duke Ellington.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. And Duke Ellington didn't really, I mean, as much as he started off as a big band leader, he didn't really love the direction it went, especially with the crooners. He felt like it was really betraying the roots of big band. And he wasn't interested in staying that way. And Duke Ellington was a big enough personality that when he decided that he didn't like the direction it was going, he decided to change direction himself. So uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Uh, what Ellington called American music and go from there. All right, we're back on HI101 here with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hi. Hi. Uh, Jazz music.
1: Jazz music.
0: I think I was talking earlier about how every time there's a progression in jazz music, except for maybe the Gershwin... I've kind of gone like, yeah, no, 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 this is, this is the right one. This is this is jazz music. Mm-hmm. The ones that we've saved for the last section here, uh, and there's a number that I've saved up. These are the ones for me that really, I, I think, feel the most like what I think of as jazz anyways.
1: Jazz with a capital J. Yeah, sure, that works. I like
0: that. <laughs> We're going to start out with Duke Ellington. And when we, when we did the clip for um, Big Band, I kind of went, well, you know, what other clips should, or could I have thought of? And you said, "Well, take the A Train" by mm-hmm. Duke Ellington, mm-hmm. um, and I already had it lined up for this section because it's not really it, it's it's not thought of as being big band anymore for a couple of reasons. Let's let's play a clip of it first, and then we can start talking about the track a little bit more when people know what we're talking about. I suppose <laughs> so. Let's do that first
2: you take the air train. You'd find it. You get where you're going if you hurry. She do a blah but we a do a blah but we a do a ooh. She do but we a do a sway blah but do a do a I ain't mad at you, pretty baby. Don't be mad at me.
0: So, Duke Ellington put out a couple versions of that song over the course of his career. He he was actually a like a a really versatile musician. He changed his his style a number of times. Mm-hmm. And back when he was doing big band stuff, he was considered uh, a master of the three minute format. We talked about how seventy eight rpm records mm-hmm. were. Three minutes long, you got to get out that that three-minute single. And he was apparently particularly good at hitting a three-minute song, no problem. (laughs) What he started doing when he kind of abandoned the the big band format is he started stretching it out a little bit and making it a little bit more uh, true to its roots of having a main sort of uh, a main theme, a main motif of the song, but still kind of bringing it back home each time and having a main motif of the song and allowing each instrument to kind of do its own thing but then find its way back um you'll also note in there that uh the singer betty roche was scatting which is Mm -hmm. often thought of as like a a feature of of jazz um uh, louis armstrong actually was a big uh a big driving force uh, behind uh popularizing scatting it's been around forever obviously it's just a lot of the times when we're talking about firsts, it's the first person that people really latched onto, and they're mm-hmm. doing something that they've been hearing their entire lives.
2: Yeah, you know,
0: at at one point, Louis Armstrong talked about how the music that he was making, you know, used to be called, uh, you know, Levy songs, and then it was called the blues, and now they're calling it jazz. But it's always been the same music, and there's nothing new under the sun. It's just what you call it. But what you'll what you'll hear behind that scatting is the bandmates calling back on the uh uh to to the singer
1: i noticed that yeah
0: yeah so once again with that kind of call and answer motif and and the call and answer that we keep coming back to it's not always vocal sometimes it's it's instruments calling back Mm -hmm. and forth to each other but it's it's very um uh communal in terms of the way the way they're making music it's not really centering one person out often they'll let one person step forward but the song isn't just about that one person it's about everyone working together to make the music yeah you'll notice again that this one has what we would think of as a more traditional jazz setup where you've got the uh the brushed snares and hi-hat for drums Mm -hmm. the stand-up bass the piano it's incredibly played by Billington oh my goodness and um uh, I, I don't think I got any into the the clip that I'm putting in but uh just some incredible saxophone. It also uh, changes tempo at one point to just bring it down really slow and like really smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 a great, it's a great tune. You should really go and listen to the entire thing. But as I said, there's a few different formats of it out there. So sometimes you'll find it and it'll sound a lot like uh, the last one we listened to in the mood and, and other times it'll be like extremely classic jazz, if you can call it that. Mm-hmm. The other major impact that Duke Ellington had on that was uh, how would you dance to that song?
1: (laughs) Hmm.
0: It'd be real tough, wouldn't it? Yeah. Not the same way the big band kind of... With with big band, what they were doing, you know, a lot of the swing stuff was novel, but a lot of it was incorporating aspects of traditional dances, waltzes, polkas, Mm. uh, some more Spanish-type tangos, sambas, things like that, um, and and taking them all in and, and sort of working them into a more contemporary format, Duke Ellington was interested in making music that wasn't just background to people kind of doing a, a rote performative action, mm-hmm. right? He wanted people actually pay, paying attention to the music itself. And one of the ways he chose to uh, to do that was to just divorce the music from dance, which is kind of a controversial move. I mean, it's, it's making a pretty big statement about how you want your audience to experience your art yeah which is a little prescriptive but the fact of the matter is that the music that he started making out of that intention Mm -hmm. is is very much like i said this is the one for me that's like that's 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 jazz jazz. that's jazz right there um and we're gonna hear a lot of other well, a lot a few more um very much jazzy songs but Mm -hmm. that feels like the classic one to me at the same time as as uh as he's reacting to uh to big band there's a there's a major movement in new york against it as well i mean duke ellington wasn't the only person that had issues with big band we talked about the lindy hop earlier and mm-hmm. it's uh, uh as as a cultural reaction to uh to swing dancing not all of these artists had ideas of how best to or had the same ideas of how best to fix a format that they saw issues with Real, so really all you can do is you know write your own music and see how you know, let people decide for themselves, right? Yeah. So, right around the same time, in fact, the same year that Duke Ellington wrote "Take the A Train," a piano player named Felonius uh, Monk wrote a to- uh, a song called "Round Midnight," which uh, we'll put on next. And Thelonious Monk is possibly he he would easily rank in the top ten best pianists of the twentieth century, if not all time. He's incredible, and. Uh, I find this one a little bit challenging to listen to, but it's—we're—we're uh, we're, going to throw it on, and we'll talk about it as soon as it's over. <laughs> Definitely looser than pretty much anything we've heard Yeah, probably since we were talking about the um, the field call or, or rather the, the call and answer slave songs mm-hmm. where you hear people kind of individually improvising within the, the theme.
1: It was interesting to me to hear how that song developed because in the beginning, just the piano on its own sounded very sharp and very angular, like mm-hmm. very harsh. Yeah. And he
0: was a very percussive piano player. Yeah, like, he hits the keys really hard.
1: Yeah, which was different from mm-hmm. like what we had listened to before. But then when the rest of the band came in, it sort of smoothed out a little bit.
0: Yeah, um, jazz is a very gestalt art form. I mean, like yeah. very few of those parts would sound like anything on their own. Mm-hmm. They're they're kind of garbage parts alone but but it's 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 eh, garbage is, is really harsh there's some amazing musicianship there but it, it wouldn't sound nearly as good as it does as, a, as an entire unit i mean when we talked about you know american music from duke ellington he's still a band leader right so he's very he's very much telling his his uh his musicians how to play things how to you know how to go about performing the piece Felonius monk who by the way can we just like mentioned he has like the coolest name
1: i know right
0: it's it's amazing felonious it. monk. monk he wasn't interested in that uh, the, the the form of the form of music that we're listening to here is called bebop and uh part of it is from like kind of the the scat singing uh tradition part of it is kind of the the spastic uh style like if you if you listen to it it's very reactive yeah so there's still a little bit of the call and answer going on um You'll notice often one instrument will kind of echo another one immediately mm-hmm. thereafter. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, with kind of the, the brushed snare uh, percussion, a big feature of bebop is the walking bass. I don't know how well it comes through. The bass on these recordings is really not strong. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a hard in- instrument to uh, to record, and, and these are older uh, recordings. so. It, it you know try going back and maybe listening for it if you didn't notice it the first time but there's a there's a major theme of the bassist not really doing a whole lot of improvising necessarily he's there as much to hold the the beat as he is for anything else and the the pattern is is very much uh, eight notes at a time four going up four going down or sorry five going up three going down uh, but yeah the, the the walking bass has been a feature of jazz uh, ever since bebop I mean it, it was obviously there. Earlier, but but Monk's work really entrenched it. He certainly wasn't the uh, the only major musician to come out of this style. John Coltrane, obviously, is a is a a major one. As is uh, Miles Davis, Mm -hmm. um, who you really can't talk about jazz without without talking about Miles Davis. What an incredible musician! Yeah. But again, what you're getting is is kind of this tradition of of not dancing, but but paying attention to the music. The music is what's important, not as a a feature of the environment, right mm-hmm. And um, for monk as well it was a, it was a reaction to to big band to the kind of commercialization of music. Not that he was it, a lot of this stuff ends up making a, making these people sound like some sort of communist idealists or something like that. It's not that he didn't want to make money off of it. It was just that there's a difference between uh, being recognized for your skill and talent and pumping out cookie cutter hits. Mm-hmm. And that's where they kind of saw Big Band going, uh, you know, and and looking back, you kind of go, well, there were so many great songs coming out of that era. Well, yeah, that's because we get rid of the bad ones. We don't listen to those ones anymore. Mm-hmm. It's always easy to cherry pick. And I mean, that's that's really what we're doing with jazz as well. There's lots of bad jazz that's come and gone and been forgotten. But
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's important to remember that it's it's as much cultural as it is anything else, because music is... Not a logical thing and trends in music are not logical things it's 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 incredibly subjective and especially when it comes to jazz there's a lot of social factors that play into it so a lot of jazz players will look at big band as as an era in jazz music as being a bit of a a tragedy (laughs) and and the people who came directly after thelonious monk uh duke ellington miles Davis, john coltrane these guys uh saved the genre from from being whitewashed so this music as I said before is a lot more challenging than most of the stuff that we've been listening to
2: mm-hmm. not
0: that it's bad but it takes a little bit of active listening and there's yeah. a lot of parts that almost sound like they're kind of bad <laughs> like it sounds like maybe he messed up <laughs> and I think that Thelonious Monk would uh, probably deny it forever even if he did mess up because he was the kind of player who kind of figured out how to make those work for for his advantage but it's definitely a much looser feel than anything we've had before the motif is there it's way harder to pick out other than that like that end resolution like you hear where the the section ends for them and that's the only thing that really sounds like they know where they're going with anything you know the the rest of the time monk was very much encouraging his other musicians to improvise just as much as he was mm-hmm. so it wasn't it wasn't really one person standing out front and having everyone react to them anymore. It was all of them reacting to each other and they all had to be incredible musicians to make that work.
1: Oh yeah.
0: It would have been impossible without, without an incredible level of skill on all of their parts. Yeah. So bebop is kind of the, the style that you're going to associate with kind of some of the, some of the early fifties, peace movements like the the like long before the hippies you got the the whole beatnik movement yeah this is the sort of music that they would have been into this is uh-huh. the kind of thing that would have been associated with uh you know beat poetry and 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 stuff like that some of the the more grassroots both art and pacifism movements that would have been going on on the east coast it's mostly because when you look at these things they're all kind of counterculture they're skewed strongly towards young people at this point in time and specifically intellectual young people, jazz has always had a bit of a problem with, say, ever since basically Thelonious Monk, to be honest with you, ever, ever since Thelonious Monk, <laughs> uh, it's had a bit of an image issue in terms of maybe being a little bit snobby or thinking highly of itself. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when you look at its history because for a long time, it was like the grungiest down and dirty music there was. <laughs> but now all of a sudden it's become a little bit inaccessible as, as an art form. You listen to that now and, you know, we've, we've been exposed to jazz our whole lives and it doesn't have a lot of the cultural connotations that go along with it right. uh, that, that people had then. And it's, you can get into it, you can listen to it, it's mm-hmm. fine, maybe it's not your favorite thing in the world, but there were, again, lots of people who considered this unlistenable garbage. Hmm. And there's always going to be that reaction. Anything cultural, there's always going to be that reaction to anything new, right? Um, That's true. Rock and roll was going to destroy the youth, and so were comic books, and so were, and and so was the novel in the nineteenth century. You know what I mean? Like I know the
1: music that even Mozart was composing was considered to be almost like too modern for classical music.
0: What was that one pianist's name? I can never remember his his name. Was it Schubert that would have, like, young women like lounging across <laughs> his his piano as he played and he would like stand as he played and like there, there's these there, there's these certain figures that now you think of as being like really stodgy and uh-huh. uh, and and uptight and uh um yeah when they were young they were edgy mm-hmm. and edgy is just a moving goalpost like that's oh absolutely that's the nature of it yeah
1: that's like the very definition of it
0: when uh when Julius Caesar was a young person in the senate Over 2,000 years ago, him and his buddies started wearing their togas in a different style across Mm -hmm. one of their shoulders. And all of the old senators were outraged by this. They were aghast at this fashion style. Like, I love stories like that. (laughs) Julius Caesar, the rebel. He would have had torn jeans if he lived 25 years ago. What a punk. What a punk. These punk kids (laughs) wearing their togas different. So yeah, that's that's always something to keep in context. Though is that there's always there's always this movement and and this this uh, this leading edge in art. And in the '40s and '50s, it's jazz. It's absolutely jazz. That is the most avant-garde thing that's happening. And as cliche as it is to use language like this, the establishment had a hard time dealing with that. The establishment, in terms of what was widely socially accepted, and uh, and the uh, the culture and entertainment industry as an establishment because it broke all the rules and it didn't make sense and sometimes people just fear of change and mm-hmm. that's how it goes mm-hmm. um yeah Thelonious Monk had no problems being on the edge he quite enjoyed it well
1: with a name like that well
0: I mean, yeah, where else could he be <laughs> what's he gonna do work in insurance
1: I know <laughs> Not gonna happen it's there's not gonna no happen. place for him in
0: insurance <laughs> they would never let him be there no it would never Yeah. Uh, no <laughs> not at all after this jazz kind of fractures a little bit one thing about genres of music is that usually they start out really strongly and then they fracture into all these sub genres as people try to kind of cat- categorize and catalog all of the different um, mm-hmm. ways that it goes i mean think of the different kinds of rock and roll now oh yeah like, there was a time where rock and roll was its own thing, and then all of pop music was rock, and then, you know, the 80s happened, and, well, the <laughs> 70s happened, and disco up was yeah. really what happened there. But, it, you know, it, like, every type of music now, if you ask somebody to describe their band, they have to use 11 words to do it. That's true. The same thing happened to jazz. Uh, yeah, metal music is the same way right now. Have you ever, like, looked at some of the different kinds of metal that's no. out there? Oh. I don't it's... even know
1: how to describe like some of the music I listen to. Like when people ask, like, well, what kind of music do you listen to? Oh yeah. Like I listen to a bit of everything, but I mean
0: Yeah. It can be really tricky, can't yeah. it? Yeah. I, I, I dislike that question a lot because yeah. I'm well I'm I'm the same way. My my tastes range so much that it's kinda like Like oh, I wanna kind of...
1: give a concise answer, but it's like realistically can I do that?
0: What kind of music do you listen to? Everything uh... I, I should really just start saying rock and walk away, <laughs> even though that's not quite accurate. Yeah. it's it's really really not
1: the good kind. End of story.
0: Wow. <laughs> Shut down. Shut down. I you know at this point we start seeing uh, cool jazz. We start seeing uh, which is which is uh, a lot slower and and tends to focus on uh, a lot of saxophone. Uh, use It's a lot less uh, sporadic and spastic. It's a lot smoother phrasing. Uh, you see modal jazz, which tends to be played in uh, weird modal scales. I don't know if you remember this from theory, but like Doric and iambic and all those different, like rather than just sticking mm-hmm. to major and minor, you get into all these weird ways that you can play a scale. They played around with that stuff and just went for like, let's see what we can do. Mm-hmm. You get hard bop, which is a, a is a, an evolution of bebop. You get free jazz, which is which which makes the uh, the the felonious monk uh, song that we just listened to sound downright structured. You <laughs> now,
1: also... is is cool jazz similar to smooth jazz, or are those two different genres? Those terms? are
0: two completely different genres, okay. and that's part of the problem with categorizing this music, and that's part yeah. of the reason that I'm kind of just blowing past all of these. Okay, as much as a comprehensive history of jazz might want to deal with some of this diaspora <laughs> in a more comprehensive way. I number one, I don't have time, and number two, I don't feel like they sound that different. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, not to not to write off the work that some of these people were doing. It was incredible stuff, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's it's pretty difficult to keep up with all the different types. Uh, in 1954, the Newport Jazz Festival was established which kind of helped to legitimize jazz as its own thing separate from, you know, like jazz had been around for so long, but it never really been called just jazz. We've talked about, you know, we've talked about ragtime. We've talked about uh, swing. We've talked about big band. We've talked about like all of this stuff, but uh, you know, bebop, American music, the, the establishment of the, the Newport Jazz Fest kind of helped jazz establish itself as being separate from that train, which most people viewed as actually leading towards uh, the crooners. Mm-hmm. So towards what Frank Sinatra was doing. And, you know, the, the, the jazz festival has had a, a long and storied past. It keeps getting moved around. I mean, it was established in Newport, Rhode Island, which is like the least jazzy place I've ever heard of. <laughs> but it drew like a lot of big names, like really big names. Like mm-hmm. all of these guys that we've been talking about, Thelonious Monk, Miles Davis, um, Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, they all played the festival at one point or another. And it really helped to solidify the genre as being separate, but also important in the American consciousness Mm -hmm. and kind of gave jazz its own life, which is is something that had been fighting for for a long time and never quite established other than through the process of taming it, which Mm -hmm. is what we saw with Gershwin, which is what we saw with the big band stuff, right? It's kind of making it, safer, I think is the word we used. Newport allowed jazz to be important and well-known without becoming safe. Mm -hmm. I want to throw on a a John Coltrane song because we're going to move into fusion jazz, which I think is the best uh, step to take after Thelonious Monk. So this is called Giant Steps from 1959. So they call this fusion jazz. This is another one where it's like, oh, no, this is real jazz. Mm -hmm. I think I still, you know, default back to that uh, Duke Ellington track personally the most. But, man, John Coltrane was just an amazing saxophone player. Like, the the skill that's involved in playing that is is unbelievable.
1: I feel like his lungs must have been
0: huge. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that I would point out the most in this one is... When you listen to a lot of the other songs, it at least sounds like there's a plan yeah, of some sort. There's a very, like, recognizable plan.
1: There's like a roadmap.
0: Yeah, and, and, and really what that has to do is has to do with the, uh, the chord progression that the song follows. Mm-hmm. This piece, and, and in general what Fusion Jazz did, was just throw the idea of chord progressions out the window. Normally, you know, normally when you listen to it, like, you know, most most rock songs have, like, three chords. And anything that happens happens over top of those three chords. And that's the bones of the song. Mm. This song doesn't have those bones. It's yeah wobbly. Yeah. And it, it, it always seems to be, comp- like, constantly shifting and changing. But everybody knows exactly when to shift and where to shift. And even though they're playing incredible things and they're all playing completely different things... Again, it still makes up as a whole yeah, a really they're interesting... they're very
1: tight together.
0: Extremely tight. That drumming is crazy. Yeah. Everything about that is crazy. The bass, I don't know how you play a bass that fast. Like, it's, it's so hard to play upright bass quickly, and that oh, guy is yeah. just going to town. Yeah. I, I, again, bring this one up because fusion jazz is... This is one of those categories that a lot of people think of as, as the quintessential jazz, because, largely because it's really challenging. It mm-hmm. sounds a little bit incomprehensible. Uh, a lot of people don't like it that much, and it's kind of pointed to as a um, as a downside to jazz, where it's it's a it's difficult to get started, right? Mm-hmm. There, it's a it's a high barrier of entry. The reality of what's going on here is that Coltrane is standing on the shoulders of giants with guys like Thelonious Monk that are already doing like extremely complex things, right?
2: Yeah.
0: There are. You know, in terms of in terms of uh, the rhythm pa- patterns, there are Cuban uh, influences here, Brazilian influences. There's a lot of stuff that's going on that's that's crossing over with different genres. Now, other jazz pieces at this point are crossing with uh, soul music, with R and B, with Motown, uh, funk, rock, even um, doing things like bringing in electric guitars, which were kind of look down on the, in the community a little bit, but there's this burst of creativity with, uh, with fusion jazz where people are looking for anything and everything that will make mm-hmm. interesting music. And it's really a maturation of the, of the art form in a lot of ways following you know sort of that legitimization in the 50s to sort of allow jazz to cross over with other music forms but still retain the identity of jazz because traditionally what's happened when it crosses with something else, it becomes a completely different music form mm-hmm. uh, in terms of perception by the public and also occasionally by the performers. Jazz crosses with uh, with marching band music and becomes ragtime. you know Jazz crosses with orchestral music and becomes big band, but it stops being jazz. Yeah um, Fusion jazz is really the place where it starts standing on its own as as something other than pure jazz. Uh, mm-hmm. but still being jazz. Yeah. Uh, and, and It's it, like a
1: little bit more experimental, but...
0: It absolutely is more experimental, but people are still listening to this and going like, yeah, that's jazz and yeah. not saying like, oh, that's that's some weird new kind of rock music. Mm-hmm. And I think it says a lot about the, the sort of public perception of the art form. That, you know, part of it is how long it's been around. When something is brand new, it's it's really hard to get it established. For sure. And new types of music come and go all the time. Mm-hmm. Like all the time, like where's dubstep these days? I know, gone, forever.
1: We'll what never is hear that? It again.
0: <laughs> it's it's. It, but you know what I mean. Like yeah. it, stuff stuff tries and sometimes it sticks and sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people don't pay attention, and that's that's why it's so difficult to talk about some of the early stuff here. Is that we don't have any of it sticking. People have had to kind of go and and, and trace the roots back. But you know, by by the time. By the time Coltrane is doing fusion jazz, it's 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 stuck as as its own thing. It's established itself. It's proven itself. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too is that we're getting closer to the point in time where we're talking about the civil rights movement. And certainly in the North, especially in you know Chicago and New York, where you know we've had um, African Americans uh, coming north from the South for decades now, mm-hmm. millions of them. Yeah. Um, And there's a there's a strong uh, sense of community there and a sense of identity there, in a in a less persecuted light. Anyways, it's okay to like jazz. It's not looked down on in the way that it used to be. It's Mm -hmm. not as dirty as it used to be in the in the speakeasies. It's not as as, you know, ethnic as it used to be when Gershwin kind of took a crack at it. Yeah, it, it manages to stand on its own. There's one more Jazz Fusion piece I wanted to play. And this is from a very divisive album by Miles Davis. Some people say that this was kind of the saving grace of, of jazz. Other people say that it ruined it forever. <laughs> but the most important thing is that this is Miles Davis's best-selling album of all time. And it's a record that people commented on mm-hmm. outside of jazz, which is important.
1: That is important.
0: Not all of them favorably.
1: But it's interesting that it was so controversial.
0: Well, let's, let's throw this track on. Um, it's called Miles Runs the Voodoo Down. And uh, the album was called Bitches Brew from 1970. lot of stuff going on with that one yeah bitches brew was kind of at the end of the jazz fusion Uh, i don't want to say the end it was the high point of jazz fusion really he's obviously been heavily influenced by funk on this record Mm -hmm. there's a lot of funk (laughs) a lot of
1: funk undertone i really like funk it's so good
0: but at the same time you know it's still got jazz bones here it's absolutely jazz all the way through yes it has guitars with that extreme like it's absolutely funk guitar if you listen to it there's definitely some law on those guitars <laughs> the electric piano really uncommon for jazz this is also 1970 there's weird stuff going on in music the synthesizer is just kind of coming into it's fashion <laughs> people didn't know how to use synths back then i feel like they've only really figured out how to use it took synths a while the for them to find their years. way <laughs> There's some bad... Man, the whole 80s. <laughs> there there were 10 bad synth songs for every one good one. But this isn't about 80s pop. This was divisive for a lot of reasons. Number one, it was a really popular record. And when records get popular, people talk about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, it's a challenging record. Yeah. Like, the people that were talking about this are, are, you know, other major musicians at this point, And I'm sorry, but Led Zeppelin is not... Like, they're not jazz. Like, they don't... They, they,
1: they don't just, really fit the bill.
0: They stole a lot of blues songs from, from earlier folk musicians. Mm-hmm. A lot of blues songs. But, you know, like, it's it's, it's, um, it, it's got people that sh- normally have nothing to do with jazz talking about jazz. And some of them love it. Some of them think it's fantastic. Other ones will say things like, it sounds like Miles Davis tried to uh, make a, a funk record and just got the wrong... Uh, artists because it sucks, um, <laughs> you know. Like, and the the thing about music criti- criticism is that you know there's there's you got to accept that there are completely contrary viewpoints that are both completely valid. Music is a subjective thing. We like what we like, and that's one of the difficulties of of doing this topic is is trying to pull out a narrative of what. What worked for this art form, right? Because I, I I'm sure there are a lot of people that you know tried really interesting and innovative things that we've just never heard because it wasn't popular enough at the time. There were also jazz musicians who were commenting on this, saying saying things like uh, the the instruments that he was using were making it not real jazz. You know, the electric piano, for example. Right. That's that's the thing about a, a subgenre like jazz, like jazz, and really about Anything that comes from like a really strongly emotional sort of underdog position, because, you know, let's, let, you can't ever forget when you're talking about jazz that it's it's a it's an art form associated with African-Americans. Yeah. And specifically their their experience in the United States. There's this this whole issue of the the no true Scotsman argument that like, well, this isn't real jazz. Yeah, because here's how I define jazz. And what you just played doesn't fit that definition and therefore it's not jazz. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of that kind of thing going on. This is still just a, a massively selling album and it's really important. There are, you know, musicians to this day that still cite it as a, I say that like it's a really long time ago. It came out in 1970, but there, there are, there are current musicians that cite it as a, as an influence on their, on their careers. Um, mm-hmm. Tom York from, uh from Radiohead mm-hmm. uh, mentioned that this was a major influence for their record OK computer, um, which is kind of interesting, but you know, he talked a little bit about why and, it, and he had he had some interesting points that he made about it. Okay, computer is not jazz, but you know, the, anyways, I'm, I'm getting off topic into just talking about things I like. <laughs> uh, which I guess is kind of the show, but we should try and wrap this up soon. Once again, though, it kind of brings me back to this point that he did all this weird stuff and he did all this non-traditional stuff and he did all this experimental and interesting stuff and it was still jazz and it's still listed in the jazz category and you still listen to that and you kind of go, yeah, that's jazz. Mm-hmm. And if, you, you know, if I were to ask you why, you wouldn't say, oh, you know, oh because of the strong use of syncopation and the, uh, <laughs> you know, like you, you would say, well, because it is. Yeah, I I just listened to it. It's jazz. I heard it and I heard jazz, and that's still just kind of the 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 high water mark for jazz. That's the that's the trial by fire. It is it jazz, mm-hmm. and you either say yes or no. <laughs> and if you say no, it's not jazz. And if you say yes, then it is. And then you know it when you see it. Yeah. The tricky thing with talking about history is deciding when. History ends. Um, generally, we use twenty years as a uh, as a rule of thumb, hmm. not talking about anything more recent than twenty years ago. Um, but unfortunately, we get into like really bad adult contemporary uh, smooth jazz. With I that mean, timeline. especially when
1: you are talking about music, it's something that's constantly evolving as you know culture is evolving.
0: The thing that I decided to pick as an endpoint was that on November fourth. 1987 uh, the US House of Representatives officially uh, passed a movement recognizing jazz as a unique form of American music hmm. and that it had a, um, a a central and important part in the development of American cultural identity as well as uh, being integral to the experience of African Americans in the country and uh, and their unique effect on american culture and identity i decided to stop with that because i hear that and i go yeah <laughs> like it's important though that they that they recognize that because it's about yeah it's about time you know what i mean like
1: yeah absolutely
0: and and to their credit it's easy to say that looking back at all these years of of, of musical history and cultural history and go like yeah this was all important stuff yeah you could see where this was going well it's the whole hindsight is twenty twenty exactly. thing right of course it was important but it matters that the united states has recognized it as being important because cultural identity is such an important part of 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 uh, national identity and it's not just about politics and it's not just about uh, economics or comparison to uh, other nations it's also about you know just the day-to-day lives of people what kind mm-hmm. of uh, what kind of music do they listen to and yeah. Jazz is an American thing. Like, it's so... There's... there's, Without... Y- you can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe you can have America without the jazz, but you can't have jazz without the United States. <laughs> you absolutely can't. It's impossible. You can't have it without slavery in the South. Uh, you can't have it without the immediate emancipation of the slaves in 1865. You can't have it without Jim Crow laws and um, and minstrel shows. You can't have it without... Uh, the marginalization of uh, African Americans in in American civil life, in terms of of their role as entertainers and and uh, uh, and as active members of society, you can't have it without segregation. Yeah, all of those things have have shaped this this art form.
1: It's such a beautiful and transformational art form that came from something so awful.
0: Well, and I mean, is I, I completely agree, and it's it's. I, I, it's not great to speculate on things like this, but it's so much about about passion and about um, struggle and about just just you know raw emotion. Yeah. That it 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 kind of feels like the right sort of music to be coming out of that sort of experience. Oh, for sure. Um, it, you know it, it.
1: It's very appropriate.
0: It absolutely is. You know, watching jazz come to prominence and acceptance within American society is. In some ways, and I mean I it's it's I hate simplifying this way, but it it, it is somewhat reflective of um, the unfortunately slow acceptance of African Americans within American culture. Yes. It does follow a very similar progression. And you know, without you know, as as I said, without that experience as a group, you you just don't have jazz music. You have I, I guess more European music. I guess we'd all be real into into marching band music or whatever. <laughs> Boy, what a world.
1: I know. <laughs>
0: throw throw down some throw down to some sweet trumpet and bass drum. <laughs> oh man. I had a lot of fun putting this one together. Yeah. This it's is really... a really interesting topic. Yeah, it's And really I really interesting. hope
1: that, you know, people who are listening to this are maybe more interested in jazz music too or realizing that there's so much variety out there.
0: I had to put in such short clips. Like every single thing that I put in here mm-hmm. is barely representative even of just the song that I picked out, mm-hmm. let alone the that genre of jazz. Yeah. Uh, as a whole. I mean, go go listen to the whole songs and you will hear things that are are comp- like barely even hinted at by the clips that I've actually put in there.
1: I mean, we touched on culture a little bit throughout this, but I think one of the most amazing things about music to me is that it's a universal language mm-hmm. and it's something that, you know, communicates across cultures and countries and languages and it's an amazing thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and when I was putting this one together, um, it's so different than what I normally do that I, I quickly realized that this show wasn't going to look anything like what I normally do. <laughs> um, in, in that... In that um, this is less about the people and more about the the um, like the outcome, the art itself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I decided that it's it's far less interesting hearing about, you know, what year Ella Fitzgerald was born mm-hmm. and far more interesting looking at how a, a creative endeavor that, that you know, people have put forward over decades, um, centuries at this point has evolved over time and how it kind of reflects the society that it was being created in. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I had a really good time putting this together. This was a, this was a really fun topic to do. Awesome. Um, was there anything else that you felt like we missed or you wanted to mention or no,
1: I think you got it. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome.
0: Yeah. I I hope, I hope we do more social topics in the, in the future. It's not the first thing that comes to guests minds when I ask them to do the show, Mm -hmm. but uh, maybe still get a, get the ball rolling a little bit. Yeah, that would uh, be really exciting. Because, you know, I, I there there hasn't been a topic I've done yet that I didn't love doing, but this this was a lot of fun. This really was a lot of fun. So oh, That's great. Uh, thank you for picking it, and thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, my it.
1: pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Social history is tricky. It's often presented in the classroom as a sidebar, an unfortunate requirement that gets in the way of so-called real history. But the reality is that history is much more than laws and wars and governments and kings and armies. Those things just tend to get written down a bit more than topics like what people bought at the grocery store, or how people dated, or what music they liked. Those wars are often less complicated and sometimes more exciting, but they're also harder to relate to. The wonderful thing about a topic like the history of jazz music is that you don't have to imagine yourself as a great general or a brilliant engineer to appreciate the story, because it's the story of very ordinary people collectively shaping the world around them, and that connection can really bring the past to life. Next time on HI 101 we'll be talking about post-Reformation Europe and the political and social upheaval of that period. Watch for that episode on November 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.